From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Bob Binns, Corey Lilberg, and Justin Taylor from Parker Binns Vineyard in Mill Spring, North Carolina. We were very happy that Bob, Corey, and Justin could join us for this great conversation. We had such a good time that we decided to make this a two-part episode. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. Join us as they take us through the next chapter in the history of wine. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. If you want to do the, this episode, you can So today we are not at home. We're not doing this virtually. We're actually live in person. We're in Mill Spring, North Carolina with the fine folks at Parker Benz. So let's go around the uh, mics, if we will, and, and everyone can introduce themselves and, and tell everyone who you are and what you do here. But let's start with the man himself, Bob. Uh, yes, so uh, I'm Bob Benz. Uh, my job here has been relegated to doing uh, nothing. <laughs> the young people have more or less put me out to pasture. <laughs> but I still overlook everything and make sure that the pastures are properly groomed and fertilized and that sort of thing. So uh, that's about what I do today. So do you have like a throne and a, and a crown? Oh, I do. Oh, you and a scepter? It. Beautiful, yes. I sit up there on my throne and... Watch TV, read books, and drink wine. <laughs> I want your life, Bob. <laughs> no, you don't, please. <laughs> you don't want to be in this body. They get old and creaky. <laughs> You're doing pretty well for yourself. Bob just told us he celebrated 88 years uh, a few days ago. So, happy birthday, Bob. Well, thank you. My name is Corey Lilberg. Uh, I'm the, uh, the GM and the vineyard manager here at Parker Benz. Uh, Bob's grandson. And I came here, started in 2019 full time, uh, and I've sort of grown into a role of doing a little bit of everything with my primary focus being the vineyard. And I'm Justin Taylor. I'm the winemaker here. I, I know that might seem like a narrow title, but we, uh, we've put a lot into building out something that uh, Bob and Karen started, and it's they've given me a lot of free reign in being able to not only pursue creative projects, but try and push the envelope for what could be and not just accept where we are. So it's been a, a tremendous opportunity to work with them. Excellent. So Bob, let's maybe start at the beginning. How did, how did you and Karen get started here in Mill Spring with a vineyard? Uh, well, it goes back to probably the late 1990s. Uh, we had a tree farm grew uh, palm trees and tropical hardwoods, and we had a plant nursery in South Florida. And one morning, like every morning, Karen and I are at the potting bench, and it's July, and the perspiration is running off me, and it's 7 o'clock in the morning. So I say, Karen, we need to go to the damn mountains in the summer. We're getting too old for this. So we talked it over, and we decided we would look. So we drove up to, well, we checked out northern Georgia, and and South Carolina, North Carolina, we even went as far as going into Virginia and looking. But I had one criteria. I took a compass and I put it in Fort Lauderdale and I drew a circle and I had to figure what I could do in a day's drive because I had a, a boat in the water in my backyard. And the most important thing to me in those days was to make sure my boat survived any hurricane that might come up. So this was on the fringe of the 10-hour drive from Fort Lauderdale. and. So we liked the Lake Lore area and we drove around the area. We Actually, it was in 26 or 27. We had a very hard time finding any property. It was at the height of the boom and nobody wanted to sell. Everybody thought things were going to keep going higher and higher and higher. So we finally found 10 acres here in Polk County 
and we liked the land, we liked the layout and everything. Uh, so we bought it. There was an old chicken coop on the land and nothing else except a bunch of overgrown growth and trees. So uh, we put up a, a small log cabin uh, house and we put in a garden and being in the nursery business, I said, let's put some grapes in. I said, because I always wanted to grow grapes because I always drank wine because I used to be in the food and beverage business years ago. So we put in grapes and the thought was at the time we would sell them to the Biltmore and I was in touch with the grower of the Biltmore at that time whose name escapes me. Uh, and he was telling me that, yeah, we'll buy your grapes when they come due. Well, you know, it takes three years after you plant them before you have any fruit. So when it did come done, come uh, come through to fruition, uh, we were in a recession. And I called the Biltmore grower and he had left then, he retired. And I talked to, uh, I think, probably talked to Bernard then, who was a winemaker. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, he said, we're not buying grapes off of anybody new this year. We would have been new to them. So what I should have done, I should have walked up and down every row and dropped every grape bunch on the ground and said, okay, we'll get them next year. <laughs> but instead, stupidly, I said, well, why don't we make wine? So Karen and I got together and she made a batch of wine and I made a batch. Well, hers was a heck of a lot better than mine. Mine, mine was pretty bad and hers was pretty decent. <laughs> So she became the winemaker by default, and I took care of the vineyard, she took the wine, and little by little we grew and grew until finally it got to the point it was too much for Karen. So luckily, a fellow by the name of Michael Sterling, uh, who's got a vineyard out in Oregon now and does winemaking, he introduced me to Justin, who was in the market, and he was working at Burnt Shirt, but he was looking to relocate. So I talked to him and we got together and it's been all uphill ever since. Justin's a winemaker. We have no problems with taking care of the wines. I said, Justin, you're the man. And he's been the man all the way, all along. He's, we give him in full reign. He knows the wines better than we do. So he takes care of that end of it. And he is the winemaker. Then in 2019, Corey came on board. He spent 10 or 11 years in the Air Force and he wanted to get out. And so I gave him a get out of jail card free. <laughs> that is not how I recall that. <laughs> and, and so he came up here and, uh, and he started doing the vineyard. I saw he liked it. And I said, well, this is my chance to back out doing any more damn work. I said, here, you can be me. <laughs> and ever since then, I've been sitting in that throne you talked about drinking wine and looking at TV. You show up for interviews, and that's what matters. So. Yeah. 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 We're, we're, well, we're honored to have you here today. So. <laughs> well, you have wine. Right? You have wine. Yeah, we got it's wine because of Bob. So. <laughs> but it's, right. it's been, I think, one of the biggest things, too, for me was I, uh, you know, at that time, like Bob said, there was a mutual connection with somebody who I had taken over as predecessor at another facility. And it was an unannounced uh, meeting for coffee. And I kind of had in the back of my mind of, you know, where we were meeting. And I just ran through in my mind. And I thought there's only one place that I imagine would be looking to have somebody help them make the wine. And sure enough, I, I got to the, I have a hard time being early for most things. But I was early to this meetup. And I was sitting in the coffee shop. And I saw Bob and Michael coming through the parking lot. And I was like, well, you know, for me at that point, I was like, all right, I'm already agreed to to join because I, oh, I, I knew you made him bless. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew, uh, I mean, I think as far as my perspective goes for their, their sense of place, this was, uh, was something that I had known just through the local industry. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was very easy for me to, to be excited about jumping on board, but also was welcomed with the fact that Bob and Karen both wanted more from what they had growing here. Um, so, I mean, every year we have gone after what the next step is. I, I think that's that's probably the the constant that we have. It's not staying still. It's it's what's next. So that's been a, a huge, huge opportunity. 
And you started at a good place anyway, because Karen was doing a pretty damn good job with yeah, and I mean those were with the two of them. So (laughs) those were big. Those were big things to wrestle with. And the first harvest, we were working out of the shop that Bob and Karen had built for their farm equipment when they were living in the the log cabin, (laughs) as Bob says, and. Uh, I'll never forget that. I mean, because the first few days, I started in the spring of 17. So I was on for the growing season of 17 going into harvest. And that was, I mean, that means uh, everything to some extent uh, as it relates to a facility. And we got to start working out on the crush pad as harvest started. And we were using a a bladder press that ran (laughs) off water and uh, ran off copious amounts of water. And, you know, I don't, I don't, think there's a point in in anybody's time making wine that if they haven't seen uh the bladder explode on a water press you you like haven't <laughs> checked all the boxes and in that yeah and in that situation it was just you know we were on our beat everything had been going along we we're working on processing fruit you know a few weeks of good consistency and then i was out there one day it was karen adolfo and i and Karen was running the pressure up on the bladder press, and it was kind of, you know, it was at that point where you should say, okay, we're there. Critical mass. Yeah, critical mass. And we, we hung around critical mass a little too long, and I will never forget because the minute the bladder exploded, the pumice flew out from underneath the, the cage, and it, the only person it hit directly was Karen, right, <laughs> oh. right in the face. So it was one of those like front row seats to a bad situation. We salvaged the juice that was that was coming out. Like everything about it worked out, except for the fact that I don't I don't know how long it took Karen to get the the pulp out of her hair. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was it's very you know and 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 we jumped again. We jumped right into it. It was seventeen on the old equipment, and then by eighteen we had a, a small facility built out that was designed to try and take everything to the next step so and i think you mentioned it too like with the next step like you've never stayed steady like you've always been always increasing always building up the next thing i mean you know we're sitting here in the old building but a new part of the old building looking at the new building <laughs> it's just confusing it's like <laughs> it's just like okay this is fun but yeah i think the point is you've always been improving year after year after year that's the hope that's the goal always just trying to take the the lessons learned from the year prior applying to the new season and Keep on keeping on, as it were. The way they built this place out, though, yeah, I mean, I would agree with you in the sense that it was, well, we've never grown grapes before. We picked varieties with, you know, what we want to drink at the end of the day when Chardonnay, Merlot, and Cabernet. Um, hey, we want to first start growing fruit for the Biltmore Estate. Now we're making wine. So it's, it's always been this snowball effect around here where it's like, all right, we don't we try not to bite off more than we can chew. And that's probably the way, wrong way to say it because we consistently bite off more than we can chew. But uh, it, the way the place has been built from the get-go, it's a, a slow roll in letting the business grow itself. And it's been doing that recently. And the vineyard's been growing around it. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, we are uh, just put three acres in the ground this past year. I'm getting ready to introduce another half acre this spring. Last year we did Malbec, Tanat, and Vidal Blanc. Um, definitely jumping on the hybrid train in the sense that Chamberson will get planted down here. Um, we've always had, not always, but Chamberson was one of the first plantings after the initial block. I mean, it was the second block that had a, a chunk of Chamberson in it. And those wines are becoming so much more widely recognizable from a consumer standpoint. Um, and then certainly as a grower, I can say it's the it's, it's one of the few grapes that we grow that looks happy to be there in October. And, you know, it's one of those things that it speaks to you in a sense. So I've come a long way because you always think about marketing. Um, And Chamberson on the East Coast is a lot easier to market than maybe, say, out West. But um, the wine style that Justin's created out of the fruit that we've been able to give him has been really well received. And, yeah, we're putting more in the ground. again for wine class with the wine mouths jesse jessica welcome back thanks we're on this journey through the history of wine where are we again we've made it to the 1700s which is the 18th century okay (laughs) (laughs) carry on all right uh so here's a little context for what is happening in the 1700s because it's a 
it's a busy time period. Um, so we start the early part of the 1700s. The very first newspaper is published in America. So things are happening in America. Uh, we'll come back to that. Back in Europe, we've got the Seven Years' War, which lasts for seven years. Seven years. Wow. Um, <laughs> what a concept. And in this war, Britain and Prussia defeat France, Spain, Austria, and Russia. France loses the North American colonies. Spain cedes Florida to Britain in exchange for Cuba. What? That's a lot. It's crazy. Um, so that happened. Also in 1760, the Industrial Revolution begins in, seven, in England. I'm not sure, like, how that was the defining date, but it is. So, like, you know, we're, we're leaving our old ways behind, and we're, we're headed forward into the Industrial Revolution. Um, back in the States, too, we get the beginning of the American Revolution in 1775, with the Constitution being signed in 1787. Jumping back to Europe, the French Revolution begins in 1789, and... That's kind of the 1700s in a very abridged nutshell. So many revolutions. Lots of going yeah, on, yeah. lots of war, yeah. lots of... Industrialization. Yeah. of independence. Yeah. yeah, modernization, colonialization, all these things are still happening. Um, so yeah, we're going to dig in a little bit. Yeah. So let's tell some stories. Back. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to hop to Italy right now. Um, so in Italy in the 1700s, we're starting to see some of the first wine laws and some of the first structuring of how we consider Italy now with wine. Hmm. So we're going to start with a little story about Chianti. So the Chianti area is spread between Siena and Florence, um, but it wasn't necessarily a wine region as quick as you may think. So there's a lot of strife between the Florentines and the Sienese. That's how you say that. Um, and it prevented a lot of these vineyard projects um, through the hills of this area. So Although we have the Chianti region, um, and we even had like a law in the 13th century protecting it, it was mostly protecting property and not really defining. Um, the first time the word Chianti was applied to wine was in the 14th century, but it was a white wine. Oh. So there was, there was red Chianti, but it was called Vino Vermiglio? Vermiglio? Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. During the Renaissance, or just Florence. They just called it Florence uh, when it was exported to London. Thanks uh, to the Brits for making it easy for us. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but it wasn't liked very much because we don't really have corks yet. So it was sent uncorked in these flasks filled with olive oil and rags. And so, of course, oh, yucky. Oh, right? Well. I can't imagine that aged or traveled well right. or didn't spill in transit. Yeah, exactly. So, in enters the Medicis. 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 <laughs> Who knew I? No, I was Italian know. at one point. I think it's Medicis. Nope, I feel like right. there was You're a Medici's. show, right? There was yeah. a Catherine, right? Is it Medicis? Medicis. Medicis. I don't know. I didn't watch the show. Yuanjo Unamella is the only Italian guy. So. <laughs> wow. Well, anyways, in 1716, Cosimo de Medici, Medici issued an edict defining the boundaries of Chianti and some other regions. But we still don't quite get there with the wine yet because most of this land was held by sharecroppers who gave their crop to the landlord. So we still don't really have like winemaking and that sort of thing. But things finally took a turn for the better. We get Baron Ricasoli and he decided to run his estate and he decided to do it all himself and not give it back to the landlord. So he's running his estate himself. Um, and so he kind of laid the groundwork for the classic Chianti mix, which was Sangiovese and Caniolo, the grape. That so, wasn't the olive oil. They're right in the rags. <laughs> or the pasta. <laughs> Were they like clean rags? Were they dirty yeah, rags? Like I have a lot of questions. But so this straw flask, right? So um, the bulbous flask, glass, uh, was typical of this, but the glass was so thin, which is why they wrapped it in straw at the bottom, so it wouldn't break. It was a fiasco. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. So it was called a fiasco in Italian, and it became kind of a joke. Yeah. That's really interesting because we have talked about, maybe not on this podcast explicitly, but um, glass bottle development and how it, like technological advances changed wine corking, and, or like just wine bottling, I'm sorry, and transport and stuff. So that's really interesting that they created these straw flasks to help make it stronger. Yep. Thankfully, now we have glass, though. 
No rags. No rags. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you use what you have. Yeah. All right, so that's Italy in the 1700s. Yeah. Um, so we are going to jump to 1718 and to an abbey in Champagne. Did I get it? No. <laughs> it's a champagne. Or a champagne in English. <laughs> um, and this abbey publishes a set of winemaking rules that's said to be established by Dom Perignon for quality winemaking. And it warned against using white grapes, Chardonnay, to keep wines from becoming sparkling from re-fermentation, which at that time was considered a wine fault. However, we know, of course, today Chardonnay is a desirable desirable grape for sparkling wine making in champagne and elsewhere so anyways kind of crazy that back then they saw it as a wine fault <laughs> today we see it as something desired who knew a failure could be so expensive yeah you you got to fail up right <laughs> yeah and they did <laughs> in a big way in 1737 in hungary we get the first demarcated wine region of the world in Tokai. this is in the foothills of some mountains in hungary and it was demarcated to protect the sweet wine, sweet white, wow, let me try that again. Sweet white winemaking tradition um, made from the ferment grape. And that had been made at that point for nearly a thousand years. And so they're blocking it off and making it important. Oh, I should have read this part before. But yeah, so we talked about industrial revolution. People, well, throughout history, people have been modernizing and advancing and coming up with new ways to do things. And in 1740, glass bottles were redesigned, and they were redesigned to be laid on their side. So what this allows us at this point is now wines can be aged long term, also probably transported a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. um, you're not getting everything spilling out between those rags, those leaky, gross rags, <laughs> and all the olive oil <laughs> everywhere. Those clay pots that don't sit upright. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so they use molds to make bottles out of, and at this point in the record and history, we see molds that are closer to what we think of as like a modern wine bottle we, we still use today. Um, and having these molds for glass bottles also allowed for the use of corks, which is a way better closure. Yes. <laughs> than dirty and or clean rags. So, <laughs> so smell. Yeah. 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 All right. So now we're going to hop to Portugal. Um, so during this time in Portugal, we have Britain signing the Methuen Treaty with Portugal in 1703. And so this Methuen Treaty was a military and commercial treaty between England and Portugal. And it was signed as part of the War of Spanish Succession. Um, but the name comes from the representative for Britain was John Methuen. So of course... They were the top yeah. dogs, so they got the treaty named after them. He literally wrote history. He, yes. <laughs> um, so it formalized existing trade patterns between Britain and Portugal, and it laid the groundwork for Portugal's economic dependence um, on Britain for the remainder of the 1700s, but specifically for wine. Um, Portugal agreed to purchase English wheat, textiles, and manufactured goods in exchange for for preferential duties on Portuguese products, specifically olive oil and wine. Mm. So, um, but to the big, the start of this treaty, as usual, Britain and France were at odds, and so that's kind of how this stemmed because a lot of people um, saw this. This was actually more of an anti-French treaty than it was a pro-Portuguese. But they, Britain, had to figure out how they were going to get their wine if they were going to be at odds with France. Mm -hmm. So they picked Portugal. Um, but so the effects of the treaty, it started off well, right? Like the quality of wine, specifically port, because that's what we know of Portugal, coming from the Douro was good. Growers and shippers were happy. They were making money. But the rising demand couldn't be met by the Douro, Douro wine. And so shippers were growing greedy. Like they, they had all this demand. They wanted to make the Brits happy, but they didn't have enough. And so um, the, uh, they started to kind of adulterate the wine, and they used wines from other parts of Portugal. They even used Spanish wines, which they called Bullock's Blood. <laughs> it was fun. Um, they would do raisin wine or cheap spirits to add in. Um, but most notorious, which I found very interesting, was the addition of dried hot peppers and elderberries to provide like the heat from what was supposed to be alcohol 
and color. No oh, right? that's, yeah. That is <laughs> like yeah. let's <laughs> let's trick people to think they're drinking alcohol by just putting peppers mm-hmm. in the wine. Um, so, anyways, it burns. <laughs> but um, also, how sad for Portugal that they just hated the French so much. They're like, okay, this this will do. <laughs> yeah. Raisin water, peppers, and yeah. that's <laughs> right. Um, but so we have this happening in 1755. A large earthquake hits Lisbon, Portugal. Wow, who could have seen that coming? Right, changes everything. Um, Forty thousand people were killed. Oh wow, which is a lot for yeah. the 1700s. Right, and also a small country. Yeah. yeah. So the country went into chaos. The king was desperate for leadership and guidance. Didn't know what to do. So he relied on his chief minister, um, who was. First one guy, but then came, became Marques de Pombal. And so he established monopolistic government power on different Portuguese activities, one of which being wine. So he created this really long Portuguese-named organization, but what we now know of as the Douro Wine Company. Um, and it had two main goals. One, it wanted to get power back from these English merchants that were being wealthy and greedy and really causing a stink in the industry. And it wanted to restore pride and financial security to the Portuguese grape growers. So his new company had control over all port shipments and even the English companies could only go ahead after they passed a tasting by the company. Mm. So the company was like, we're checking this wine that's leaving the port. Like literally checking it. We're tasting it. There better not be any peppers in this one. Exactly. But... Exactly. He ordered all the elderberry trees to be uprooted. <laughs> like, not even giving people an opportunity yeah. to adulterate their wine. Um, and all the vineyards had to be registered. Hmm. So he got back to where the wines were getting their higher prices. And um, even today, these areas that he delimited with this are what they are today. Wow. Hmm. Do they grow elderberries? I don't know. I wonder like, if they replanted. Oh. <laughs> oh. It's crazy. But that's what you get. If you yeah. put elderberry in your wine. Smells <laughs> of elderberry. Yes. <laughs> Man, that's wild. Yeah. Well, we're gonna hop countries now. Yes. All right. We are we've got, jumping. We've got more fun stories. For we're you. still in on the European continent, but we are moving to Germany now. So um by the late 1700s in Germany. Quality wine was beginning to service, and they put a really strong emphasis on this time, at this time, on Riesling. Um, and there's a legend about that goes way back, uh, kind of hand in hand with this, I guess. No, yes, it is about Riesling. Okay, so <laughs> uh, the background of this legend: there is a there was a site in Rheingau that was picked out by our guy Charlemagne way back in the 8th century, which is also known as the... (laughs) And it was very well known, even by... Maybe subtract there. (laughs) Going backward. Um, The Benedictines arrived back after this time, and they led the way in establishing this Rheingau space as a great wine producer. Then, wow, this is going way back. But the Thirty Years' War ended in 1648, brought chaos to... Things were not looking good. Vineyards were in a rotten state. Everything was bad. Nothing was good, but a guy named Prince Bishop of Fulda bought this monastery. What a name. I know, right? <laughs> and he wanted to revive the estate and build himself a very nice castle. Or schlosh. Or schlosh. I think castle sounds better. <laughs> Isn't that, a, is that what he, you are if you have a lot of reason? Yeah, I think he was schloshed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we fought 30 years for this, for this schlosh. Anyways, okay, backing up. So here we are. We've gone back to 1775, and Fulda, the Prince Bishop, was seven days away from Johannesburg. Seven days ride. So like today in a car, that might take us like two minutes. But are we there yet? No, not at all. And the vineyard manager sent a courier off to Fulda, seven days ride away, asking for permission to pick the grapes. Not sure why he needed permission, but like they couldn't make their own choices. I mean, he's the prince bishop, so I guess that makes sense. But we don't know what the courier was doing, but he was late. Yeah. Mm. No one knows. He did not write about it in his diary. But when he finally got back to the vineyards, 
it was past time. The grapes were all shriveled up. They were rotten, with shriveled with rot. And it was just too bad that all the neighboring estates had long finished their harvest, but here they are just twiddling their thumbs at this schlosh, just <laughs> waiting. So anyways, they, they just are waiting for this, yeah, the word. Right. Like, Can you imagine everybody picking grapes around you and you're just like, yeah, nope. <laughs> I mean, he must have been pretty serious because if they picked him and he got mad, like they must have been really scared mm-hmm. yeah. of what he would do. Was gonna hate it. Ooh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so why not still pick the grapes and then make wine? So. I mean, rotten grapes. Why not? Yeah, you use what you have. Maybe they had, well, they had clearly a lot of free time on their hands. Because <laughs> if they're just waiting around to not pick grapes, then it's fine. Um, so the next February, it finally stopped fermenting. And it was rich, and it was sweet. And actually, it turned out it was okay. I Like that poor man who had to be the first one to taste test, like, you try it, you do it. Uh, but yeah, it turned out actually really great. And so most of the this grape, the grapes in this Riesling-only vineyard had been affected by a noble rot before the harvest began. So this happy accident actually laid the groundwork for the sweet wine, which we know is now, well, now under the German regulations and naming, um, is termed spotlace, which means late harvest. And so from this time, 1700s, late harvest wines from grapes affected by noble rot on purpose have been produced on purpose. Um, and so the subsequent differentiation of wines based on the ripeness at which they are harvested started in 1787, starting with Auslace, and it laid the groundwork for the Pratocast system, which is in effect through today. Yep. Oh. Thank you, Schlosh. Which <laughs> <laughs> means castle. Castle. <laughs> but thank you, Falda. For, uh, and this courier, like, what do you think he was doing? He was getting schlocked. He was getting <laughs> <laughs> in the woods getting schlocked. Now I'm wondering, like, where does that word come from? Mm. Mm. Probably something along the lines of that. <laughs> We're going to have to get a Google rabbit hole after this. Yeah. He was at the wrong schlock. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving to the United States now. Yeah. We're here. I believe this is rounding up our 1700s. Yeah. So winemaking came to California with the Spanish missionaries, um, and they were the first Europeans to settle in California. So Spain had occupied Mexico um, and established 21 missions up the coast of California. So the goal of the missions, as most missions at this time, they wanted to expand territory for Spain. They wanted to convert the indigenous peoples to Christianity, and they wanted to develop their resources and send all the money back to Spain. Um, so the missionaries were led by a Franciscan friar, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> that was so very Spanish. That was an American name. It should be Juan. Junipero Cerro. Father Junipero Cerro, who was a. I don't even know. I think Jonathan that. is an American name. Do you want to redo it or leave Can we it? say the name again, please? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're sloshed. So the missionaries were led by a Franciscan friar, Father Junipero Cerro, who established the first mission in San Diego in 1769. Um, and soon after, he wrote letters about the difficulty and cost of attaining wine from Mexico, so they were very motivated to produce their own wine. Um, there were native grapevines growing in California, but as we know with the native grapevines in the United States, they weren't suitable for winemaking for what the folks wanted at the time. Um, so they started importing vinifera cuttings to grow their grapes. Um, there's some dispute exactly when and where the first vineyard was established, but um, it was in the 1700s, so 1778, uh, and the first vintage of wine came four years later in 1782. Uh, eventually, grapes were planted at all but two of the missions. So the two missions that couldn't grow grapes were San Francisco and Santa Cruz because they were too cold and foggy. But the Los Angeles mission um, was the most extensive vineyard because it had the best climate. And the first grapes grown were uh, the mission grapes or Pais, what it was called in Chile. But uh, so those were the first grapes. And they actually used wooden platforms lined with animal skins to um, put the grapes on to get the juice, kind of to, to press the juice, juice mm-hmm. out. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. 
a lot of dreaminess. Um, so just to kind of round up the 1700s, it was a time of revolution and change. So we get the Declaration of Independence in 1776, um, at which they toasted that signing with Madeira, so bringing it full circle. Um, but also, what? Did I still say it right? Okay. Um, <laughs> and the Constitution was signed in 1787. <laughs> But then, right, so we, we are doing our thing in America, and then back in France, they've got the French Revolution from 1789 to 1791. And why this is important for wine is because the rise of Napoleon after the French Revolution meant that the church, which is an important keeper of wine knowledge and all that important stuff, the church lost a great deal of their power after the French Revolution and also land as the land went back to private owners. And so we're gonna see how that change impacts things, you know, kind of coming up next. So to wrap this wild hundred years up, we've got some food pairings because we're gonna dig deep and come up with some, some food pairings for this. So <laughs> uh, we started our discussion with Italy and Chianti. So we're thinking about food pairings for a classic Chianti. So of course you gotta go Italian, obviously. Mm -hmm. So spaghetti and meatballs or lasagna, of course, pizza are going to go. Any of those things would pair nicely with Chianti. Um, we also talked about port in the Douro region. So with port, that's a nice, easy pairing with cheese, any amount of cheese, all the cheese, any kind of cheese would be great. Well, maybe not any kind, but a lot of cheeses. Well, the classic pairings like Stilton. <laughs> yeah, Stilton. there we go. Um, also, of course, chocolate desserts, right? People love to pair ports with desserts. Um, for example, a molten lava cake Ooh. might be over the top. You could go for one of those. <clears throat> uh, we also talked about Riesling and the importance in uh, the schlosh at that time. <laughs> uh, and Rieslings are a fun one because, you know, you could definitely go with German pairing, but here at the Wine Mouth, we prefer more uh, unusual pairings with a Riesling, like Chinese takeout or spicy Thai food. Um, something a little bit more unusual, unexpected. And we also hit a little bit on the Pais grape and just yeah. like the Mission grape and and that influence. Which is having a comeback. Hmm. Yeah. Being produced out of Chile, not California, but yeah. So this rather, you know, run of the mill, like easy going wine could pair nicely with Mediterranean food or Spanish tapas, um, Greek food and appetizers, things like that. Could be a nice pairing. So what a wild friend. <laughs> Well, I was just sloshed from all of that, so that was a uh, hundred years. So many revolutions that just, happened that time. Yeah. The drop of a hat felt like nothing. Yeah. Well, we look forward to the 19th century <laughs> next time. Yes. Excellent. Well, we will talk again soon. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. So let's, let's talk about the vineyard a little bit more. So, so maybe let's go back to where it started and then talk about, you've given us a little hint of where you're at now, but let's walk through kind of you know, the evolution right. of the vineyard. If you look out that window, you see these Chardonnay plants, that's where we started and we went that way toward White Oak Mountain and we just went down, we said, well, we drink Chardonnay, we drink Merlot, <laughs> we drink Cab Chav, we there drink we Cab Franken. That's how we planted them along the way. And you know, when they were little babies, we didn't have any irrigation because we were dry farming. So I had like almost a thousand feet of hose that I was dragging, watering the vines, and you just can't pull the hose because you have to go and put it over each vine. And so you would go a few vines and drop it and then you could water more. And then and I did that for the whole damn first year. We're still doing it in year 14. <laughs> <laughs> well, close, but not exactly. Dry farming. Um, well, we're still dry farming. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're like Bordeaux and Burgundy. We dry farm. I agree. And that there is something about that with the whole, I mean, it's not a part of sustainable farming, but it definitely is a part of that conversation that's catching a lot of fire right now. 
And we do get a lot of rain around here. Yeah, well, there's plenty typically. <laughs> um, but to go back to the vineyard as it was as it was started, the block that Bob just described is what I would you know which is dubbed the Heritage Vineyard. That's kind of where it all began. Uh, he planted what I described as Norte, which is this block over here. It's a Chardonnay block, and then they started to put a little bit more Merlot. Uh, Petit Mansang came into the fold right around 2012. Uh, got into the Chamberson at that same time, and Muscat uh, Giallo became a part of the growth here. And we've we've since taken the Giallo clone uh, with its availability being the biggest issue, uh, and the fact that it would rather stare at the Mediterranean than at pine trees. <laughs> We grow Cornell's clone, uh, Balvin Muscat. Uh, so we're planting a good chunk of that this spring. And then, like I said, last year we did the uh, Malbec, Tanat, and Vidal Blanc. But we've also added in the last few years Petit Verdot uh, and expanded upon some Merlot and Petit Vinsac as well. I don't know whether you noticed, but as you drove in the entrance here on Whiteside Road, uh, to your right, there's five acres of woods, which mm -hmm. we're clearing now yeah, to put in more grapes. Okay. Oh, nice. Okay. So how much would that... I did notice that there was that that was different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was always something different <laughs> every time we cut. So how many uh, acres would that put you so at? Total 20, acres. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask me. Yeah, yeah don't ask Justin. Don't ask Justin. But don't ask Bob either. <laughs> Justin only counts to where the grapevine sits. I say no, it's a whole damn row. <laughs> That's it. So, I mean, yeah, as far as square footage planted here, if you wanted to put it that way, uh, right now producing, we were just under nine. We just put another three in the ground. Cool. So, yeah, we're right there at 12. 12 acres? Producing. I well, think you're producing I think you're a little little short, but we'll go with 12. What's all right? You're so, if we, put in, if we put in four more, that'll give us 16. Okay. Oh, and then that other area where we're going to plant the box, that'll give us another three. That'll give us 19 acres. I can't wait for a new press. Sounds like you're going to need it. Because uh, yeah, well, yeah, it doesn't you know, go to That's why acres. I asked you about the tanks, because... <laughs> <laughs> when we have enough to fill up everything, it would so I've learned you have to do everything in systematic style. When we started, I just said, oh, well, you need tanks. <laughs> 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 I, you know, I knew nothing about it when we started it, and I did a, made a lot of mistakes. You know, if anybody was getting into wine business, my advice would be go work in a vineyard and a winery for a year or two, learn what you're doing, and then you won't waste a lot of your own money if you get into it yourself because... Believe me, you waste a lot of money if you start without any knowledge of what the business is like. That's some good advice. For yeah. sure. It's also what like I think a lot of our customers, because that story essentially gets told to every person yeah. that comes through the door. And so many people look at that and just imagine tenacity. And I'm like, yeah, yeah that's yeah. one word for it. Yeah. He's definitely, but yeah. I mean, he, was, work he was 72 years old too when yeah. they started this thing. Yeah, so when I'm, we came here, I was 72 and Karen was, I don't know, 60 something or other. And we were out there playing vines on our hands and knees, pulling wires, putting in posts, and I thought, oh, we can do this forever. It's a learning curve. You can't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was amazing. I, I just I keep remembering the first few times we came here, and it was just you and Karen. I think one time in particular, used to every time we would come over in this area, it would rain. <laughs> so it was a sunny. It was a Sunday, and it was. Pouring rain. We got here not long, long after you'd opened, and we just sat for like an hour or hour and a half. You were just pouring wine, and we were talking, and it was just, it was just, it was just the four of us in in, the, in this room over here, and uh, just that experience kind of set that. Okay, you know, this is a place we want to come back to regularly. You so. would be surprised how many people come up to me today and say, you know, we miss it when you were down there in the other tasting room because we had time and we all would sit and talk, drink yeah. wine and sit and talk. And it was more chum-like, you know, more, more low-key, more yeah, friends. Like, now people say, oh, you've gotten too big. I said, no, no, we're just paying yeah, the bills. Yeah, exactly. I know it's, it's good to see that evolution. I, I'm glad I was here when it was smaller, but it's not like you're massive corporate place. You're no, still no, no, a very much that. a family <laughs> yeah. operation, obviously. And, and that we can't even find through. a good accountant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's our next project, to find a good accountant. Good luck with that. Oh, well, yeah. That's all yours. No, I, I mean, I remember the, the balance of working with 
at that time when the tasting room and the winery were literally across the street from each other on this little part of the property. And I worked at that time, I worked Wednesday through Sunday. And I think I worked three days a week. And then two days, I would usually like host whoever came from the tasting room over into the winery <laughs> or I would wander over to the winery and you know Bob would be sitting in a rocking chair on the far side and that was and that and that like it all made sense it all had a fit to it and then I think I you know I don't I don't think that there was any part of moving to the top end of the property where there's any regrets because now you know when you're up there you 100% have one of the best views in the county um, it's a it's a beautiful perspective on what's down here. So if you were to right. try and do the snapshot uh, 14 years down the road, it's it's up there. But um, you know, and again, we still from time to time have folks come down and we'll hang out in the winery. But I, I th- these days I do get a little more done five, <laughs> five days a week. I like down here by yourself. Probably good. I am down here by myself, and breaks. that actually that helps because it definitely is you know getting in the zone and, and making sure I'm focused on stuff. But um, but during harvest, it's it's definitely a matter of, of having help, and with bottling, it's a matter of having help. But um, there's sometimes where it's just almost having nothing going on, but your your thoughts as to what you're trying to do is also helpful. Um, not about being in like an echo chamber, but being able to just kind of sit down and make a decision over something that's, it's not a long, it's not a short-term task. Everything about it is long-term. That's, so That's the tractor for me. Yeah. Right? It's your meditative space. Out in the vineyard. Kind of try to make sure that you're at least going in the right direction. In the <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily, that's probably important. Not necessarily that's what you're driving, but where you're trying to steer the ship that is <laughs> the vineyard and the winery and everything else. No, I mean, it's it's been fun watching it grow. Uh, my only regret is not getting here sooner. And, you know. Amen. I wish I would have gotten here sooner. Um, I, I would have, you know, I really would have loved to have gotten here when I was much younger. I mean, because it's an interesting life. I mean, and, and, and there's so many aspects. I mean, I started reading about marketing. I mean, because I never, <clears throat> everything we grew down in Florida for trees, there was a demand. We didn't have to market them. People just came in and bought them, but here you have to market what you sell, and it's a whole new field. And I enjoy it, though. I mean, I really do. It's it's interesting. I think it keeps my brain alive. Absolutely. Well, and the other thing too is that the the North Carolina industry is so young that there's not even a footprint that you could look back on. Gen- I mean, we're barely at the point where, and I I maybe could consider myself. Uh, a second gen where I can look back at the pioneers who established and try and do like a quick and dirty review of what's working and what's not working. And that is the only point where you can actually start your second phase of, all right, is the selection of what we're growing correct? Is how we're growing it correct? Is how we're making the wines correct? And then at the end of the day, all of that is only justified correct if... There are people, yeah, Bob says so, <laughs> and, yes. and there, are, there are people who come out and enjoy what you're doing, because to me, at the end of the day, and I have always kind of had this in the back of my mind since I started this from, like, an educational perspective, you can do whatever you want, and then if nobody drinks it, you only got one shot at it, so that was it. <laughs> so for continuity, I mean, you've, you've got to try and at least understand the, the long term of, of what you're the long-term implications of what you're doing. Um, I mean, that, that's in every field too. So like you said, what's working, I, I think of that obviously from like a cultivar selection perspective, but then on the flip side of that coin, we can talk about that, but what's working as far as like our attitude and the, or our approach to how we do business in the tasting room. I mean, you guys go to a lot of wineries. I like to think that there's a plenty of them that are kind of in this breath, but we are, we have definitely embraced the idea of being unconventional in our atmosphere in the sense that, you know, you can touch the furniture, um, you can come have a good time. If you need a quiet place to go because the music, the live band is just too much for you, we try to provide that. Um, but again, if you want to be in the middle of the party, you came to the right place because we try to have a good time and not take the fun out of wine because, I mean, you mentioned it, you have memories of sitting down here and talking with them. Right. That's, what, yeah. that's what's in the glass, right? 
So we just try to make memories for people. And go no, ahead. No, 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 I was just going to add to that. Uh, we, what Corey says is accurate there because what we try to do, we have a, a customer who builds these Adirondacks chairs and he's built quite a few for us. And we sort of put them out on the peripheral of the lawn where people can sit and look and take in the view and just be serene. And I mean, I like to do that myself once in a while. I'll just sit there and sit and you think, and it, you know, it's peaceful. Lowers your blood pressure. <laughs> you know, it's always hard. <laughs> then you go, uh, you go to the flip side of the coin on cultivar selection and you're like finding our path. And Justin mentioned being that it's like, we're a, we're a young industry. I mean, I consider myself to be the number one poster boy on Petit and Sang. I mean, I feel like this grape is telling us that it wants to be here. Uh, in the style that the, the wine can be, the, the versatility that it brings. I mean, we've made this wine three or four different ways, just kind of trying to find our style. Uh, and we, we have, uh, from a growing perspective, I mean, we've often joked, we feel like you could grow it on the moon. Um, the, I mean, the biology, physiology of the grape, it's just, it's one of those looser clusters with thick skins. And, you know, 18, we had 83 inches of rain here. The team man sang was there for us. I don't know that we could have said that for anybody else in the field. Yeah. Um, you know, we planted Tanat because it was heralded by friends of ours on the coast as the, the hurricane grape. Um, then you take into like the weather that we're having right now with the early frosts and early, like early screaming hot temperatures followed by crazy cold temperatures by more hot temperatures. The roller coaster that is the spring here in Western North Carolina. And you know, it, it, it is built for what we do out here in the western part of the state. And I, I feel like I can say that with zero question whatsoever. The only gripes I've ever heard for it is its yield. Um, but it's it's a grip that, you know, we can we can trellis things different ways. I've never had to put Petite Man Sang on the ground. Never had to drop that fruit. Because it'll just sit there and keep gaining sugar. And gosh, you hope the acid is falling out of it. By the <laughs> That's <laughs> a true statement. Yeah, bring some legit acid. You need that lower. Carpet seed. I don't know if you guys tried it or not, but while you were up at the yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah I mean, we we're shooting for that ML vibe. I mean, Justin would certainly speak better on the style than, than I, but it's it's been very well received thus far. In fact, we, we just sent some with Dan Cathy that NC Wines for uh, this year's comp yesterday. It's, it's the, the wine style that I think creates the, it, it, it creates a, a big picture relationship because it is from, at the end of the day, this is farming because it, if, if we can't grow the crop, then there's nothing to bring to the crush pad. And the less that we have fought with that grape, it comes into the winery and there's it, it, it behaves. I, I get to choose exactly where that wine goes. And I think the only thing that you, you know, that I have learned to have a caution over is that balance in alcohol and acid. Um, there's a freshness to it though, that I, that I think lives in, in the wines of Western North Carolina. I think it, it has great fruit tones. Uh, we've always tried to have good at aromatics, aromatic whites. I mean, that's Karen's, that's Karen's thing. So, you know, to be able to get in behind that and try and lift some tropical notes and then try and balance it on the mouthfeel, those are the, those are the creative outlets of making a wine that it showed up with everything it needed. All you had to do was kind of guide it into its last little spot. And those are, I think those over and over again are the wines that will continue to show for longevity not being something where we're we're like really just forcing something and and i think i think after a while that's the lesson that i feel like it's a tough one to learn but i think that's the lesson that i feel like goes the longest is when you don't have to fight with something between the vineyard and the bottle then you find that it's it's actually gonna it's gonna work for you not against you and and that's that's how i've felt for a while but even then you, you know and and I think, I don't know if it was Bob or Bob asked Corey or Corey came out. Anyways, we had a conversation at one point and it was like, how many different ways could you make Petit Man Sang? Yeah, and at the end of the day, I literally sat down and was like, I could cut this thing up five, ten different ways. How many, what kind of wine would you like to make out of it? You could go straight during some like you did in the past mm -hmm. with, you know, dessert wine styles or these like super viscous, you know, high alcohol. Because I mean, it's making sugar out there. It'll do it for you every yeah. year. It's crazy. And... 
and then you go to the table wine. You could go for that malic finish if you can if you can hopefully get the acid to fall out of it. Um, but we're so hot down here some seasons, man. That like it, it's not as much of an issue here maybe as it would be in the colder climate or yeah. cooler. If you, you know, like if Eric was growing on the mountain, uh, you know, at three thousand thirty five hundred feet, it'd probably be a beast. I mean, I heard I heard of some pretty crazy chemistries with petite ginseng and that sort of an environment, but. Um, you know, the same thing can be said for Merlot. I mean, that's another, that's a red grape that I think in Polk County does really well. Um, the wines that it produces are relatively consistent. The grape grows are pretty consistent. It's like late enough in the spring that it's not always at risk. Like the weather we just had, it was completely unaffected. Um, it wasn't even peaking out quite yet. So we still have it delayed prune to kind of try to get to the other side of the full moon in April, which is like this very, very soft metric that we used to watch uh, yeah. the last cold event for the year. And then um, the soil profile down here, those that dense red clay um, on this side of the uh, the Blue Ridge, Merlot right bank. I, I always go back to this in the tasting room. It, it loves that red clay there. Uh, I'm not saying that we're Pomerol because we're not. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, it, there, there is something to it. I mean, especially this year's, I feel like I can taste, I feel like I can taste the soil in this uh, current Merlot that's on the shelf up there right now. It's awesome. And you shouldn't say we're not. You should say we're not yet. Oh, fair oh, enough. Oh, okay. Fair yeah, enough, yeah, yeah. Good right. point. Pomerol was <laughs> until it became Pomerol. No, but you're both. It's okay. That's right. That's right. That's that's right. close <laughs> enough. Yeah. It seemed to ABA seemed to be a thing. and Yeah, the neighborhood's doing well down here. Yeah, we're having Corey put together the ABA. Alongside Joe Forrest. I can't. Yeah, he did. Well, you work. worked with Joe Forrest and got that going. That very good. Yeah, I mean, Corey gave it, Corey gave it legs again. Because there was a point where I, I, I almost want to say that third time is a charm. Yeah. yeah. Because there were two attempts, one of which I had a little glimpse on, one I did not. And then Corey very much pushed it. Well, I think by the time I got here, like the question had come up a few times, like why hasn't this happened? And I saw the value in it. I've been asked like, why do it in India? I don't know. It's hard to say, man. Is it is it just validation that your area does something exceptional? Sure, it's you at know? least it's at least that. But I, I think mean, there's more to it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, sure, it helps you market. Sure, you can write a state on your label, state grown on your label. Once you achieve that, you own that. Um, but for me, like, I, like I was, what I was getting to was. There was less hands in the pile, so to speak, by the time I got to it. So I think we were all in agreement on what we were going to call it, which I think in most cases is probably the biggest standoff of folks, right? Like, well, the first time around, it was a naming. They were fighting right? over the naming. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, try on foothills. I mean, those two words are peppered around the western part of the state here, from the Humane Society to try on International Equestrian Center. So I mean, there's. Uh, there's no issue getting that by as far as the TTV was concerned. It was really just, they just needed somebody to say, hey, I need the money and uh, we're getting the geologist, whatever he needed from varieties in the area. Um, you know, we're trying to draw consistencies among varietals that were grown from here to Overmountain, to Mountain Brook Vineyards, the Russian Chapel. So, you know, and there were some consistencies throughout. Sure, that some of those guys are growing stuff that we don't and vice versa, but, um, I think the T-Man saying is going to show up all over the neighborhood. Yeah. You'll, have to clear, like you'll have to clear that one up with your next interview. <laughs> <laughs> At least I hope so. And, I'm, and I mean, there's such a unique growing situation here. I, I don't know that the, the densities of these crowns, as far as these foothills go, it's a very unique space because they're not large rolling pastures that you're dealing with different facets in the land profile. You're very close to, you know, a thousand foot elevation difference. And I think that the, you know, the soils here reflect it, but the, uh, the terrain really reflects it. Um, and, and I mean, at this point, I, I feel like it's very much underutilized uh, considering all the rainfall that we do get. That's, you know, a slope helps with kind of mitigating where that water gets into the soil profile. So, and around here, it's there's definitely choice sites that are still untouched. I believe. Looking at one right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that hill back there. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Join us again next month as we wrap our conversation with Bob, Corey, and Justin. There might even be a special guest who joins us. 
If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at NC Wine Guides. Until next time, and remember, Cork on Talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a free-run LLC production. This episode was made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.